On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. This is Fresh Air. I am Terry Gross. Concussion is often much more serious than we used to think, and that's led to changes in places ranging from the football field to the battlefield. My guest, Annie Leontis, can attest to how life-changing concussions can be. Her new memoir is called Sex with a Brain Injury on Concussion and Recovery. Her sex life is just one of the many aspects of life that were adversely affected. During sex, which had been very pleasurable for her and her wife, she felt like a tree stump. The concussion left her with horrible migraines, serious memory problems, foods that suddenly repulsed her, anger issues, and it nearly led to divorce. Leontis also writes about concussion research and the correlation between concussion and crime, prison, and homelessness. She had her first concussion when she was 35 after a bicycle accident when she wasn't wearing a helmet. She had two more head injuries— That may sound improbable, but Leonta says it's actually not uncommon once you've had one concussion to have another. Leontis is also the author of the novel Let Me Explain You, a professor of writing at George Washington University, and identifies as genderqueer. Leontis uses the pronouns they and she, and at this point, I'll switch to they. Welcome to Fresh Air. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Terry. And also, thank you for doing this while you have COVID. You're speaking to us from your home, and I appreciate you doing it. It sounds like you're you're in decent shape now. Yeah, and I'm really grateful we can do this remotely. So thank you for having me. Me too. (laughs) So tell us what you experienced at the time you had your first concussion, like when you were taking the fall and your head hit the pavement. What was that experience and the experience in the next few minutes like for you? And what went through your mind? You know, it was it was quite startling. Um, I mean, I hadn't expected the accident the way that folks usually don't. Um, I hit my head, and I I remember feeling alarmed that I had hit my head, um, and the world started to sort of pull apart a little bit. Like it almost felt like taffy, and time started to elongate. I felt um, just unsteady and unsure, and um, wasn't sure what to do. You know, I, I, I called a friend in the area and they helped me get to the hospital, but I couldn't process very much at all. He was speaking to me and I was not able to understand everything he said. I wasn't sure what I was saying. I ended up at the hospital um, really disoriented. And uh, really, I think I lost a few minutes in between um, until I got the CAT scan, uh, which is a procedure I hadn't expected to have to get, honestly. It just seemed like, you know, no blood, no broken bones. Went through the procedure and they confirmed I had a concussion, which, you know, even then, I mean, I think the medical practitioners were doing what they knew to do. And we understand now that concussions can't be read, actually, on a CAT scan. The axons that connect the white brain matter to one another are finer than a human hair, and so they fray and tear. But our technology is not actually sophisticated enough to catch that. So usually uh, it's the other diagnostics that tell you you have a concussion, you know, whether it's like memory, 
eyes, balance, um, f- you know, fog, dizziness, headache. I had all of that. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, you, you definitely have a concussion. Um, they gave me a brochure and I kind of went home thinking like I, sh- I should be good tomorrow. You know, they were, they essentially said, it'll kind of feel like a bad hangover, take some Tylenol and you'll be better, but don't fall asleep alone. And why not? Well, I think really the impetus for a CAT scan is um, trying to identify that there's not a brain bleed, right? Which is like, that's that's a life or death situation. And it could be that that's still the case within that 24-hour period. Um, and and the idea is like, you might fall asleep and not wake up again. Um, so I, I, you know, I was okay overnight. Um, and my symptoms got worse as they are expected to do, right? Like your your body is reacting and healing and there's a lot of inflammation. Um, and after that first concussion, I was able to recover in some way. You know, like I, <laughs> I did the right things. I got the right care. I got some acupuncture um, and I was able to come back from it. But, you know, a, as per your introduction, um, after one head injury, even a mild one, you're twice likely to have a second. After a second, you're two to four like times likely to have a third, and so on. And why is that? You know, they don't know, actually. Um, that That's something, I mean, that's just one part of the condition that we're still trying to figure out. Um, there are a lot of theories about, you know, weakness um, around the neck muscles, which is why you do a lot of PT for neck neck strengthening. There's some ideas around um, reactivity and what you know what you don't see coming because your capacities have been altered. Um, and then there's just the skull itself. And um, but we don't know. We actually don't know. So your second concussion. And like, what are the odds? Was it like a, <laughs> you were in a shop and a baby car seat fell on your head? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I felt that way too. I, you know, was improperly shelved, and these bad luck things happen. But I, yeah, I had turned away from the shelf, and it it hit me. It was entirely out of my periphery. Well, how did you handle that? I, I you. You knew that you were vulnerable already. Um, you, you know, you already had one concussion, and here it comes again. And those things are heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. It it was scary, um, but I think I was in a little bit of disbelief. Like, no, this can't be another concussion. It wasn't like hitting my head on asphalt. It's just a box. It's just a, you know, I'm in a store. There's bright lights. Like, I I have to be safe. This, you know, like. This is this this can't be happening, um, and sure enough, you know, was it was far worse than the first injury, um, which I I really had clear, you know, I had c- kind of come out of that okay, but that second injury happened, and um, the symptoms were compounding. Is it typical that a second injury compounds the first? Well, it does depend how far apart they are, mm-hmm. um, but. Largely, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And for me, all three injuries happened within a year. Oh. And, and you had a third injury, too. What was that? So the third injury was also a bit of a fluke. I just I was watering a plant, and the pot fell. And uh, in hindsight, 
you know, I mean, honestly, now nothing is allowed above my head anywhere. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go to a hotel and take the painting off a wall if I have to. Um, Seriously? Uh, yes, I will. I will. I'm sort of pretty, and I think this is very common for people who are suffering from head injuries that you become, you know, at the worst of it, you, you there's a kind of paranoia that can overtake you, but the, at the best, you're quite diligent and aware. And I should say that that extends beyond me to now my wife has an a alertness and my best friend has an alertness. And, you know, people who want you to be well and have a new understanding uh, become pretty rigorous themselves. Um, but back then, I just didn't know that... I didn't understand the vulnerability. You know, that second concussion at the store... It wasn't a concussion to me until I was like three months in and still still dealing with it. You learned a lot about concussion and about the brain. And you write that the brain is kind of the consistency of butter in a way. Mm. And that mm. when, you're, when something slams against your head or your head slams against something, the brain kind of sloshes against the, the skull, um, the brain pan. I, I, I'm not sure which word to use, but... Did having like a mental picture of your brain and about your brain getting damaged from the impact, was that helpful or was that something that you obsessed on and wished you could stop obsessing on it? Well, you know, until I was in a better place beyond the uh, acute stage of recovery, which admittedly took around five years, um, I wasn't thinking about my brain like that. <laughs> I think I was. I think I would have been too freaked out. Um, what I was. What I was thinking about was like the hypervigilance, and that. That was hard. That was hard to to um, live with day in and day out. You know, this fear that you could get hurt again at any time, and not not like another concussion. But if I, you know, Terry, if I shake the orange juice too hard, that could lead to a migraine. You know, if I tap my head on a shelf, and I mean tap, that can lead to a migraine. Still? Even now? Even now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the ways of diagnosing uh, concussion is to ask you to draw the hands on a clock. So you're given, a, you know, a circle and you have to draw the hands. Um, and I don't, and they don't tell you where all the numbers are. You have to figure that out, where to put the six, where to put the three, et cetera. Um, and you couldn't do it. How disturbing was it to you that you weren't able to do that? Oh, it was so disturbing. <laughs> I mean, there are certain um, aspects of your own knowledge that you just take for granted, even when you're unraveling. <laughs> and um, and that was one of maybe two or three instances in my recovery when I saw myself reflected back to myself. Um I hadn't known I couldn't draw a clock, but I was I was in PT um, for like vestibular therapy, oculomotor therapy, and and cognitive cognitive therapy too. And um, the uh, practitioner asked me to draw a clock and uh, and just put the numbers, you know, where they they should go. And they were all bunched up like I was a first grader, <laughs> and I I didn't even get the six right. Um, which you know, my little nephew at like age three knew the six. So, I'm I'm looking at this and looking up at the woman's face, and you know, she's sort of like, I I think, encouraging me and 
but at the same time, I'm I'm completely mystified and completely lost, and I, I couldn't believe it, honestly, that I couldn't draw a clock. And that was the start to like a, a pretty long road of recalibration. How bad had your memory become, and how did that affect your daily life and your ability to communicate with other people? Yeah. I mean, I think we tend to think of head injury in extremes, right? Like um, a severe injury, like a ski accident or a car wrapped around a pole or something. Um, we, we tend to think of those people as like completely um, the, the only model for brain injury and like almost like complete amnesia. They won't remember people's names or they'll forget, you know, what they said three minutes ago, which can certainly happen to me. Um, but my relationship to cognition, I mean, first of all, there's there's neuroplasticity, which means that the brain is constantly growing and learning and healing, even when it, it doesn't seem to be. Um, but also that those there are all kinds of slips that can happen even with a mild traumatic brain injury. And so, um, I, I mean, initially, I couldn't read. I couldn't look at a screen and I, I couldn't read at all. This was another moment where I saw myself reflected back to me. I would read it the, to the bottom of the page and forgot what I had read like a paragraph ago, um, which for a writer is terrifying. <laughs> You're a writer and, and writing professor. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely terrifying. Did you start to feel like, is this my fault? It's happened like three times I've had concussions. Um, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? And did people assume that you were either crazy or that you were just careless? Mm. I mean, I definitely was interrogating. I mean, something happens three times. You know, you get hit in the head three times with a coconut. You're sort of like, w- w- why am I sitting under this tree? Um, and and for me, I, I think, you know, I've started to think that there's this unsolvable knot that we all have. And by age 35, 37, whatever you've been running from, evading, indulging, it, it kind of catches up with you. Um, and for me, it wasn't that I, you know, some of it is just bad luck, right? Um, but for me, a lot of it was that I uh, just thought that I could get through life completely independently of everyone, including my wife. Um, and I could just take care, keep taking care of myself. But of course, you know, humans are not built that way. And if you're injured or, or sick, you, you can't. You are in a completely new, vulnerable um, position. But the problem with head injury, uh, mild head injury particularly, is that it's so invisible. We don't see it. We don't, we have no idea people are walking around with this condition. Um, and and so a lot of the people closest to me were worried that this was something else, that it was anxiety, that it was depression. Hypochondria. Hypochondria, right. Um, there's There was a term that my doctor and, and people close to me started to throw around, which is somaticization, which is just this like, it's the new form of hysteria, which of course was leveled against women for a really long time um, and still is. And so I... I was frustrated uh, for a long time that that people were not responding to this as its own real issue. Um, but of course, I, I had to respond first, right? And then I also saw that it was like, you know, it's not your wife, it's not your family, it's the culture. The culture has yet to reckon with what it means to have 
even a mild head injury, even a concussion. You'd been with your wife, or the person who is now your wife, for around 13 or 14 years when you had your, your first concussion. Were there new ways in which you had to depend on her? Uh, there, there were. I think that was something I had to really adjust to. Even something like I couldn't get up to get a glass of water or um, I, I couldn't um, make a phone call because making phone calls were it was difficult in the beginning. Um, those kinds of things that you sort of take for granted and especially because it's not like I, I couldn't walk. I could walk, right? Uh, it's not like I couldn't talk. I could talk. But uh, there were just these um, triggers that were quite difficult to navigate alone. How did having to depend on your wife sometimes change your feelings about yourself and your feelings about her and her feelings about you? That's a lot to ask in one question. I apologize. That's <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I will say that I really resisted um, relying in the beginning at all. And I, I want to be transparent about that because I think... Um, that's that's a fairly common feeling. It's hard, especially if you are raised in America, to not be independent in in a in certain certain ways, personally, professionally. Um, and my my wife, I think, had always seen me as a strong person and was attracted to that. And I had always seen her as, I mean, she's just like this very loving, caring, doting person. She. She loves animals. She's, you know, she's a caretaker and deeply empathetic. But it was a hard adjustment for us. Again, I would say in part because uh, the cultural framework wasn't there, right? Like if your spouse gets cancer, which is a, a terrible thing, right? Like I'm, my niece just came out of cancer and I can see, you know, like the, the strain that that puts on a family. But we do have a, a kind of cultural framework around cancer to be able to respond to in a way that we don't quite yet for conditions like traumatic brain injury. And so it was this big paradigmatic shift for us in our own private relationship where suddenly um, the roles were shifting or we had to be present for one another in ways that we hadn't been before. I mean, it was a real test. And the reality is that I think most couples going through something like this, even if they start out with a great relationship. I mean, my wife and I, are, we're the people that like you roll your eyes at because we love each other so much. <laughs> like, we're, like our friends um, r celebrate and also envy, I think, sometimes how, how close we are. But even if you're starting from a really strong place, something like brain injury can really rock the relationship and make you doubt. Well, be, you become a different person in a way. If you don't mm -hmm. have all your memory and you don't have all your language skills and you, you need assistance with some things, anger became an issue for you too. What were the kinds of things that made you angry that wouldn't have made you angry before? Well, just to respond to your comment first, I would say, you know, what I was grappling with was this crisis of the conceptualized self. This is what the philosophers call it when you're, you know, you literally go f from knowing who you are one day to the rug kind of being pulled out from under you. Um, and, and for me, it was like, as a writer, as an active person, as someone who was strong in body and mind and spirit, to be truly vulnerable and incapacitated, um, to not be able to write, to not be able to feel um, 
confident in front of a classroom, that, that really taxed me, you know, and I, and it's something that I'm, I've been crawling back from and grappling with and other people, I think, who have, um, have had concussions or de- dealing with similar things. Um, and, and becoming suddenly an angry person, um, I mean, I'm Greek, so like, you know, we, we know anger, we get it. Um, but suddenly to have a very new relationship to anger and, and be, it was almost like uh, I was just a pile of dry kindling and anything was a match. Okay, we need to take another break here, so let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is Annie Leontis, author of the new memoir, Sex with a Brain Injury on Concussion and Recovery. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Hi, this is Molly. And I'm Seth. We're two of the producers at Fresh Air. If you like listening to Fresh Air, we think you'll also like reading our newsletter. You'll find the interviews and reviews from the show all in one place. Plus, staff recommendations you won't hear on the show, behind-the-scenes Q&As, bonus audio. It's also the only place to find out what interviews are coming up. We keep it fun, and it comes straight to your inbox once a week. Subscribe for yourself at whyy.org slash freshair. Let's get back to my interview with Annie Leontis, author of the new memoir, Sex with a Brain Injury, on concussion and recovery. It's about how life-changing a concussion can be. They, Annie uses the pronoun they, had their first concussion at age 35 after a bicycle accident when Annie wasn't wearing a helmet. Their second injury was in a store when a baby car seat fell on their head. As a result of the concussion, Annie had debilitating migraines, serious memory problems, an inability to tolerate light and certain foods, and new anger issues. They longed for the person they used to be and found it difficult to accept who they'd become. All this nearly led Annie and their wife to divorce. They made it through to the other side, recovery. But in spite of the word recovery, Leontis is still dealing with certain symptoms of the brain injury. Leontis teaches at George Washington University and identifies as genderqueer. Let's get to the title of your book, Sex with a Brain Injury. You write that you felt like a tree stump (laughs) during sex, and that had been like, sex had been really pleasurable for you. 
But, you know, even the best part of sex felt like overwhelming, like more than like your brain could accommodate. Um, that must have felt really awful, too, to have that part of your life compromised. Well, you know, it's something we don't think about when we think about any chronic condition. Um, we are are sort of thinking in these very linear ways about injury and recovery. And I wanted to title the book Sex with a Brain Injury because it points to the reality that such an injury affects every facet of your life, right? Like nothing, nothing is unclaimed by this kind of injury. And intimacy, right, between two partners it feels like it should be this safe harbor and it's not. And, you know, for me, um, I would get terrible migraines having sex. Uh, and it was some, it felt like another great loss, right? It's like, not only do you lose TV or music or reading, but even just being in your body in this way that is about connection um, suddenly was not available to me for a very long time. After the concussion and the subsequent concussions, you kept waiting for the old you to return. Was your wife waiting for that too? I think for a while, yeah. I think a big part of the grief for her was, you know, she was worried that who I'd been was gone forever and who we had been was also gone. Um, and, and I think that's quite common for couples uh, when a partner has had a head injury that you find a new normal and a new way to be together. Um, I, I will say that that sounds really dark and glum and like I won't sugarcoat it. It, it is and it can be. But we also are um, much more honest in certain ways with one another and um, can see and support one another, I think, um, with more fortitude and resilience now. Um, we laugh at more things together because <laughs> you kind of have to. How close did you and your wife come to divorce when things were bad with your symptoms? I mean, we didn't fill out any paperwork, but we we were talking about it quite a bit. Um, we had, you know, if you're with someone for 13, 14 years, it's not like you get out unscathed, but um, these were new challenges. And I think the divorce was a byproduct of saying, like, we are strangers to one another. You know, who are you? Who am I? And that's a really hard place to be in a marriage, um, even a good marriage or one where, you know, you, you've, you, you still love each other, you still like each other, but you don't recognize each other anymore. And um, the relationship is so frayed, it seems like, how could we possibly keep going? Um, so, you know, we came pretty, I think we, we were seriously discussing it and thinking like, is this, should, is this the right thing? Should we keep going? Uh, and for a long time, even when we committed and said like, yeah, okay, let's try, uh, it really, it took another year or so to find our footing. What kept you together when you were talking about divorce? I mean, we really love each other, you know, we really do. And we see each other and I'm grateful that I'm with someone who understands that love demands a kind of elasticity so that people can grow and can change. And of course, in this context, in the context of the brain injury, that had to happen 
like too fast. And that was the, the reason for the strain and the difficulty. Um, but also, I mean, we, we just decided, we said like, we're going to keep trying. Um, and that does make all the difference. I want to talk about your childhood because it was a difficult one. Let's start with your grandparents who basically arranged a marriage for your mother and your father when she was 16 and he was 24. Why did they do that? Um, Well, my father, you know, we're immigrants and my father, um, like any immigrant, saw an opportunity to come to America. Um, And the arranged marriage was really the only chance he had. Uh, I, do, I, I can say, you know, my biological mother, both of my parents have since passed, and my biological mother, um, you know, she, she had a hard childhood, uh, much harder than my own. Um, she was a queer person who could not be queer in, in the, you know, 70s and um, until early 80s. Um, that was really stifled for her. Uh, and... They um, they wanted to get her married because they saw her as a as a problem, right? Like queerness was a problem. Um, her substance abuse addiction, which in part was uh, a reaction to the measures of control in her life, um, the addiction was a problem, and they were looking to um, find her a husband to take care of that. And my father uh, was, you know, he was young and. I, pretty naive. I mean, Greece today is not the Greece of, um, you know, 1978 or whatever. It was, he, he was pretty sheltered. He, you know, the drugs had not really come to the island of Crete yet. He, he came to America and like learned about deodorant. Like, we, you know, there were, he was from a village. Um, and so neither of them uh, was very prepared for the marriage that they were entering into. How did you find out that your mother was a lesbian, and how old were you when you found out? Yeah. Did she tell you, or did you just kind of figure it out yourself? I mean, I think um, that had been relayed to me by the adults around me pretty quickly. Again, because we conflate, especially in that time period, uh, queerness, addiction, abandonment of children. Um, It was all seen as the same problem. And so it was almost delivered as a warning to me. Uh, but she she also was quite open about it and and shared that part of herself with me, um, but because it beca- it was such a warning, you know, it was such a a, a dangerous uh, existence, one that put you outside of the law and uh, family and um, had like real consequences for my sister and I. Um, I just didn't I just didn't want to be anything like that, you know, and, and told myself for a long time that I wasn't. You told yourself that you weren't gay because of her? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You write that years later, as an adult, you assumed the gender of, quote, delicate man. (laughs) (laughs) How did you come up with delicate man? (laughs) Uh, I I mean, it sort of springs from, um, you know, the self. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I was deeply influenced by George Michael, both, like, very attracted to and wanting to be... George Michael, um, who is very much, I think, on some level, a delicate man. Uh, but also, you know, if we're thinking about gender queerness as um, as a spectrum, right? Like, and thinking ab- about um, h- having both traits of femininity and masculinity, um, 
and I I think that probably that was coming through for me even at a at a young age. You didn't want to, and still don't want to, ever be pregnant. Did that help you understand your mother and her inability to cope with motherhood? I know some of that had to do, probably a lot of that had to do with her addictions, but um, nevertheless. I think so. I think when I realized that I I didn't want to ever be pregnant, um, I'd heard other women say that, but and not disingenuously, but the, I think the idea of bearing children is um, like absolutely terrifying for most humans, right? I mean, there, it's a lot of pain, and uh, I, I'm deeply admiring of the people who do it. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it seemed really foreign, uh, really just outside of my phys- physical capacity and something I just viscerally did not want. Um, and that was maybe the first indication, you know, of like, this is a clear genderqueer line. Um, and I, I was, I think as I got older, I was, I understood that my mother had children because she was f- kind of put in that position, forced forced to do that, you know, and she like cursed my father out after my <laughs> sister was being born. She, she said, you did this to me. And I know, you know, I know on some level um, she didn't want to bear children, though I think did ultimately want to wish she could be a mother. Um, but for me, with my biological mother, I I just I really put so much distance between us. I scorned her for a long time um, because of her erratic behavior and um, irresponsibility. And in researching this book, I came across th- these studies that suggest that brain injury and drug addiction actually look quite similar in the brain. Like the regions of the brain affected or damaged um, are are synonymous, right? Because we only have we only have so much uh, you know biological data that can be impaired, right? And then the symptoms, the emotional ability, the um, the the irritability, the uh, impulsive behaviors, those end up looking the same. Even the cog- cognitive impairments. They, there are echoes of one another. And when I, when I reckoned with that, I, I mean, I, I kind of couldn't believe it. I'd spent all of these years thinking I was nothing like this woman. And not only am I queer, but our brains have been injured similarly. And it helped me have so much more compassion. You know, I didn't just pity her anymore. I, I understood... I think, on a fundamental level, what she must have been dealing with day in and day out. Well, let's take another short break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Annie Leontes, author of the new memoir, Sex with a Brain Injury, on concussion and recovery. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail. 
and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. We've talked about how concussion affected everything you know, your brain, your ability to read, your ability to speak and to write, your memory, your taste, your sense of smell, um, foods that repulsed you, um, your ability to be in the light, uh, you know, around certain kinds of light, uh, and how isolating all this was and how it made you, like, question who who you are. Um, I want to read an excerpt of the New York Times review of your novel, your first novel, Let Me Explain You. And the excerpt reads, the experience of Let Me Explain You is less of reading a book than of renting a room in someone's brain, a room boisterous with moving bodies, food smells, noises. It's a festive place to visit. That description is the absolute opposite of your brain after (laughs) concussion. And uh, I'm wondering if... You wrote this before the concussion, or you were still able to write so well and so convincingly of of joy and boisterousness that you were able to exit the feelings of your concussion and write. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, the mood is definitely it's definitely a shift. Um, so, was this I, before or after the concussion that you wrote the novel? Oh, I wrote the novel before the concussions. Okay, um, that was part of the reason that I was grieving so much is I had written this novel that, you know, was uh, a pretty big achievement for a writer. You you get really excited and you put this work out into the world and it has its own life. Um, But I felt so far away from that book that I, I turned the spines the other way. I I couldn't even, I couldn't even look at the, the title anymore. And I I think it, I, I, I might have hurt my editor's feelings when I put that line in the book. Um, but I just, I, it was so painful to me to have lived in that boisterous, you know, vibrant world and all of a sudden to, to not have that anymore. And I tried to come back, you know, I, I was working on a novel, um, but when I started with the title essay for this book, I realized I would do the experience a disservice if I wrote it as a novel. You know, all we have about concussion are false narratives, whether that's Hollywood or um, special interests reporting out about the NFL. Like, we, we just don't actually have an awareness. And we are, I do think we're on the brink of a shift in public perception about head injury, maybe the way we were about smoking in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, we'd had all the data about smoking. I mean, we were getting the Surgeon General's report every year after 1964, after you know, in the 70s, cigarette ads are banned from TV and radio, but we don't actually have that cultural shift for many more decades. I mean, when I was growing up in the 80s, you could smoke in hospitals and schools and on planes. And I mean, imagine getting into a smoke-filled pressurized cabin today. Like, that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> um, and But it took, 
really till the two, you know, the aughts and the 2010s for the, not just the legislation or public policy to start to shift, but also our consciousness and awareness. And I think we might be on the brink of that now with, with head trauma. And so for me, th- this book felt like a, a, it felt like it demanded to be told um, both as nonfiction and also really starkly to say, you know, th- this is what it's like to deal with this for years and not know if you're going to get better. Annie, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. And I know that you have suffered like language problems because of your concussion. You seem to be in great shape now. Um, You have great facility with language now. So that must be a relief. Thank you. Well, I, you know, just to be transparent, because I, I would hate to um, misrepresent the condition. I, I have a lot of notes in front of me, and oh, uh-huh. uh, and I memorized parts of these answers, and I yeah I sort of treated this like studying for the boards, um, mostly because I I know that it's really important to get the information out there, but I also think it's important to be transparent about the fact that this does take a lot of work, this extroversion and um, relaying of this kind of knowledge, and uh, I just want people out there who are suffering to know that. I can appreciate that that's what they're going through. Well, this leads me to one more question. Do you keep a journal so that you actually have a record of your experience? Because it sounds like your memory is still a little um, unreliable. I keep a lot of notes, but also the book was a way of of keeping notes, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Annie, thank you so much. Thank you. Annie Leontis is the author of the new memoir, Sex with a Brain Injury, on concussion and recovery. The HBO series True Detective returns with a new season next Sunday. It stars Jodie Foster and former champion boxer Kaylee Reese, playing respectively a chief of police and an indigenous detective investigating mysterious deaths in a remote Alaskan town. Our TV critic David Bianculi will have a review after a short break. This is Fresh Air. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on, how people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. Ten years ago, HBO premiered a miniseries called True Detective, starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It was created by Nick Pizzolatto, who also oversaw two other seasons in the anthology drama, each with a different storyline and cast. 
The last of them was televised five years ago. But next Sunday, True Detective returns with the six-episode season four. This time, the creator is Issa Lopez, who directed and wrote or co-wrote every episode. And the stars are Jodie Foster and former champion boxer Kaylee Reese, playing respectively a chief of police and an indigenous detective investigating mysterious deaths in a remote Alaskan town. Our TV critic David Bianculi has this review. It's been so long since the previous edition of True Detective, and so much longer since its first and most famous installment, that making connections to the original story, written and directed by and starring different people, may be stretching things. Except that Issa Lopez, the director and chief writer of this new chapter of True Detective, intentionally evokes some of the elements that made that first story so gripping. This new edition, called Night Country, also has a horrifying crime scene, a clash between two investigators with very different personalities and approaches, and a sprinkling of supernatural elements that may or may not be real. The setting this time is a remote town in Alaska, where the entire crew of scientists at an Arctic research station has gone missing. At first, it seems like a matter for the local cops who enter the abandoned research station to investigate. There's Pete Pryor, a young officer played by Finn Bennett, his father Hank, a veteran local cop on the same force played by John Hawks, and Liz Danvers, the chief of police played by Jody Foster. They find phones left behind and sandwiches uneaten, but only Danvers connects the dots correctly in establishing a timeline. Sat phones are back there. Uh, these are the cells I could find. This one was charging, and that one was just there, just like that. Dead battery. Who leaves their cell behind? Well, it's not like there's a lot of cell signal out there. It's not like there's a lot of anything out there. All right, well, let's get the cell records and the radio log, Pete. Yeah, that ham seems pretty fresh. All right, I'm going to call in rescue. Let's get the choppers. Ping this side as an LKP, and then 15 miles POA. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Word will spread. Their families will be upset. And if these dorks turn out to be just out on some geek expedition, don't you want to hold off for a bit? No, Hank, I don't. We're late to the party already. Um, the ham and the sandwich may seem fresh, but mayo is like syrup. Mayo doesn't go running until a couple days out of the fridge. But your processed cold cuts must survive the apocalypse. <laughs> the things you learn when your kid leaves at lunch in the backseat of the car. You were never much of a sandwich-making kind of dad, was he, Pete? Clearly, this group of cops has its conflicts. But conflicts run all through this small town. There are the native Alaskans versus the polluting mine operators... But there also are mothers against daughters, sisters against sisters, husbands against wives, and so on. Maybe even the living versus the dead. And the primary conflict is with Foster's Chief Danvers and just about everyone. Most prominently, she has a fiery past with a detective, Evangeline Navarro, who's interested in this new case, but who still has issues about a murder the two women, when they were partnered together, were unable to solve. Kaylee Reese, an indigenous champion boxer-turned-actress, plays Navarro, whom Foster's Danvers snaps at almost instantly. No, you're not going to blame her on me. And I wasn't even here. You know who was here? You. You were here. It was your case all those months. You didn't close it. 
You. Exactly. It's this new case, though, that brings Danvers and Navarro back together, working in a state of almost constant friction as the clues and mysteries and bodies start piling up. The two leads work very well together and are very impressive. For champion boxer Kaylee Reese, this has her entering a whole new ring, and she's triumphant here, too. Foster, who has several emotionally raw scenes as Liz Danvers, carries the weight of this True Detective series impeccably and confidently. As an actress, she's covered this kind of territory before, just as brilliantly, in The Silence of the Lambs. And she's no stranger to television, either. Her first TV acting job was at age six, on an episode of Mayberry RFD. True Detective Night Country is the best entry in this anthology series since the original. And this time, as with the first time, it's the direction and the mood, as well as the acting and writing. As director, Issa Lopez gets every drop of tension and horror out of her scripts. A few times, I actually gasped at what was happening. And the Alaskan location scenes filmed in Iceland make for some of the most remote and desolate winter panoramas since Stanley Kubrick filmed The Shining. Also adding significantly to the mood is the music, including the theme that opens each episode, a superbly appropriate use of the Billie Eilish recording Bury a Friend. It's creepy, distinctive, and haunting, just like this new 10th anniversary edition of True Detective. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Why aren't you scared of me? Why do you care for me? When we all fall asleep, where do we go? Come here. Say it, spit it out. David Biancoli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be actor Paul Giamatti. He just won a Golden Globe for his performance in The Holdovers. He plays a pompous and disliked teacher at a boys' boarding school in the 70s. He's assigned to take care of a teenage boy who has nowhere to go over the winter holiday. The Holdovers is the second collaboration between Giamatti and director Alexander Payne. The first was the surprise hit Sideways. I hope you'll join us. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at NPR.org. NPR.